You're listening to the Fertility Academy podcast, episode 35. Today, I'm talking with one of my podcast heroes, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, all about menstrual health and fertility. This is a good one, so stay tuned. Welcome to Fertility Academy, a podcast where we provide you with information and tools to help you optimize your fertility to grow your family no matter where you are in your fertility journey. We offer interesting, creative, and evidence-based information and give you practical tools to help you get closer to your goal of building a family. I'm your host, Michelle Kapler. I'm a fertility-focused acupuncturist and Chinese medicine practitioner, board-certified fertility specialist and fertility coach with over 10 years of experience helping my patients build their families. I'm so glad you're here with us. Let's get on with the episode. Hello and welcome. I'm so glad you're here with me today. Today, I'm going to share my conversation with Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. She is the expert that I often refer to when people want to learn more about cycle awareness and cycle health. I've been listening to her podcast, the Fertility Friday podcast for years. And today, to be honest, it was a bit of a fangirl moment for me. I love her approach to education on menstrual health and her work in teaching people body literacy and self-advocacy. She's such a powerhouse of knowledge on this and so many other subjects. And I have so much respect and appreciation for the movement she's creating and continuing to grow. So before I play the interview, I want to give you Lisa's professional bio. Lisa Hendrickson-Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception, and monitoring overall health. In her book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect with their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between the menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. So without further delay, let's play my interview with Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. All right, so I'm going to do a Fertility Friday style introduction here, and I'm going to say I'm so excited to have Lisa on the podcast here with us today. Lisa, I've already read your uh, bio, your professional bio in the introduction, but could you tell us about yourself and how you got into doing what you do? Yes, well, thank you for having me. I have been involved in this work for about 20 years or so, and the way that I got into it I kind of stumbled on it. So my very first period was really painful and heavy and I was really being into sports. I was a ballet dancer wearing leotards and I really just didn't know, I didn't have the skills or information to know how to deal with that. So I was put on the pill when I was a teenager and it was like magic. So my quote pill periods were lighter and I didn't have as much pain. So I would periodically come off the pill thinking I'm fixed and then I would uh, find that my periods were just as heavy and painful as before. So when I was younger then, I didn't have the words to describe what was happening, but I did know that the pill wasn't fixing me. And so when I did need birth control, I I was just going to use condoms uh, because back then we were taught that condoms were effective. (laughs) And so I, I actually felt really comfortable with that decision. And it was right around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. So I discovered that we're not fertile every single day. I went to a couple of really great uh, presentations on my university campus where um, I got this information. We had a women's center and all that kind of good stuff. And so basically, I jumped in. I ran out and bought a a copy of Taking Charge of Your Fertility. I started charting. And uh, I 
it, it worked for me. It was effective. And so it, I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. <laughs> but what happened was just to kind of backtrack a little bit. So I was only using it for birth control. And that's kind of all I thought that it was going to be helpful for. And so soon into my charting journey, I discovered that my cycles were actually pretty long. So on average, they were about 39 days. So looking back, I mean, I was, it was through my chart that one of my instructors, she saw my temperatures were really low, and my, you know, cycles are really long. And so she, she suggested that I have my thyroid checked. So looking back, I do wonder if I was somewhere on the PCOS spectrum, gummy bears were a food group back then. <laughs> and so, and my body doesn't tolerate sugar well, it's in my family as well, kind of like this metabolic stuff. So looking back, you know, I think that there was more to the story. But what that experience taught me was that it was, you know, it wasn't just birth control, your cycle was directly related to your health. And so that inspired me to learn to teach charting. And I've obviously, you know, started the podcast and wrote the book and all that. But ultimately, it comes back to that very fundamental understanding that our menstrual cycles are a sign of health. And by tracking them, we can learn so much about our body. And we can also avoid pregnancy naturally, if we are looking for a non hormonal method. That's awesome. Thank you so much for telling us all that information. I, I want to dive right into that part where you're talking about how you can use the menstrual cycle as kind of this almost detective clue type of scenario where you look for little signs. And as a natural health practitioner, I kind of take it for granted that people just know that these little signs and kind of being off can be, you know, a big red flag, although maybe not so big that it would show up on a test or during your blood work or during a routine exam that it's not big enough to concern your doctor, but it can still be a sign that something's off and that something might be coming in the future that's a lot bigger. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about this concept of the menstrual cycle being the vital sign and what is a vital sign and what should we consider the menstrual cycle um, as a vital sign? Well, a vital sign at the most basic level is a, a measure, a way to measure how our body is functioning. And so if we look at our blood pressure or our body temperature or our res respiratory rate, uh, we have a, a general understanding and knowledge that there is an optimal range. So there is an optimal body temperature, blood pressure. Uh, and if we were to go to the doctor and they were to take a measure of it, if it was too high or too low, not only does it tell us that there's something wrong, but it also provides a roadmap because there's certain things that would cause high blood pressure versus low blood pressure, for example. And so in the very same way, the menstrual cycle does that. So for a woman of reproductive age, we have healthy parameters for the menstrual cycle and healthy cycling. So an ovulatory menstrual cycle, a true menstrual cycle can only happen when you have ovulation. I think with the, you know, the birth control pill has given us the idea that all that matters is the bleed. Whereas when you're on birth control, you're not necessarily ovulating, uh, or it wouldn't work. <laughs> um, the, the main reason that it works is because you're not ovulating and without an egg, you can't get pregnant. And so in a healthy ovulatory cycle, then you have your period, you ovulate, you know, towards the center, you know, in the middle of the cycle, and then you have your period again. And, and this is this is how it works. And so to give kind of an example, what you alluded to was kind of some of the subtleties that you can pick up when you're tracking the menstrual cycle. So at a very subtle level, if you are tracking your cycle, even if you're just paying attention to the overall length, not even necessarily going into the cervical fluid or the cervical position or the temperature, if you start to notice that 
you know, you have something that happens, a stressful event or something like that. And, you know, you notice that your cycle is a, a whole week longer or something like that. You know, that's one of the subtle ways that you can kind of get that feedback of, oh, wow, like, I didn't realize how stressful that week was. And, uh, you know, in retrospect, now I can see that it, it was stressful enough to delay my ovulation. And so uh, on a more kind of severe, I guess you could say, level, uh, you know, an example of hypothalamic amenorrhea is one I often use to, to demonstrate how the cycle can be a vital sign. So HA is uh, a situation that happens when uh, you're under eating, over exercising, or you're having a lot of stress or a combination of those things. And essentially what's happening in that situation is that you are starving. <laughs> That's what it means. And when you're starving, you know, your body is not going to prioritize uh, having children, having babies. So when you are starving, your body's going to suppress that ovulation. So what happens in HA is that a woman is not ovulating or menstruating typically for a period of six months or more. And so we're kind of told the story that ovulation only matters when we're trying to have babies. And that if we're not trying to have babies, it's not really that important. Uh, if you think about you know, an athlete or an Olympic athlete or something like that, we kind of have it in the back of our minds that, well, it's normal for them to have issues with their cycle or to have their periods go away. But what happens when you have a period of time for a, a woman of reproductive age where you're not ovulating or menstruating for six months or more, you have a lifetime increased risk of osteoporosis. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge deal. When you stop ovulating, it's just a symptom of the fact that your body is actually starving. And even if you don't want to have children now or ever, you probably don't want to be 25 with osteoporosis. And the irony is that I have worked with women who are in their 20s who have osteoporosis because they had a prolonged HA situation, whether it be as a result of an eating disorder, disordered eating patterns, or overexercise kind of situation. So that's giving a more, and actually, I want to give another example along those lines, which would be that, you know, it's, it's not just me saying that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. There are a lot of medical organizations saying the same thing. And in teenagers and adolescents, this has a lot of implications as well. So for example, I did an interview with a woman who, so she was 16 years old. She hadn't gotten her period yet. And so for anyone who is listening and isn't really aware, the average age of menarche, your first period, is anywhere from about 12 to 13 years old. So if you're 16 and you haven't had menarche, that is a problem. That's a flag. That's something that every physician should be checking in to just make sure that you've had your period and you're menstruating normally. But she was 16 and she didn't have it. So what she told me was that her doctor put her on the pill. <laughs> and I was talking to her when she was like 30 years old and she kind of hadn't had her first period yet. But when we talked just within a five minute period, I just asked her a few questions. I said, so, you know, back then, how were your eating habits? You know, do you think you were getting enough? And she's like, oh, no, I was totally counting carbs or calories. I was like really scared of gaining weight. And I was like, oh, so what were your energy levels like? And she was like, oh, my goodness, I was like an athlete. I was doing like gymnastics and all that. So literally her not getting a period at 16 was a sign of HA, like primary HA, where you haven't, you know, your body's actually ready and mature enough to, to menstruate, but you're literally probably too thin. Um, you don't have enough fat in your body and you're not eating enough energy to support healthy menstruation. So I know that's a long answer, but I feel like that really paints the picture of how your menstrual cycle isn't just about having babies. It's a sign of health for women of reproductive age. Thank you. That's great. And I think that giving those examples will definitely give the listeners an opportunity to kind of understand it a little more deeply. So thank you for that. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about from your perspective, what does a normal and healthy menstrual cycle look like? What should people be looking for? 
Well, we talked a little bit about the length. So an average cycle is about 29 days, and it can range anywhere from about 24 to 35 days. Uh, and you could say the optimal range would be closer, maybe 27 to 32 days or something like that. But that gives you a range. And it's important for a couple of reasons. One, because we're often taught that the menstrual cycle has to be 28 days to be healthy. So there are women who might have a 32 or 33 day cycle who think that it's a problem, but don't realize that it's actually within the normal range. And also, uh, the, the length is only one of the parameters. So if I take you through the menstrual cycle, the first day of the menstrual cycle is the first day of your period, your true flow. So some women may have a couple days of spotting, but that would be considered part of the last cycle. So once your period starts, an average period uh, lasts about five days with a range of maybe three to seven days. So two days, too short, <laughs> 10 days, too long. Uh, and when you have your period, it should be a variant of red and it typically starts moderate or heavy and kind of, uh, you know, within the first two to three days, you have the most bleeding and then it tapers off afterwards. That's what we would consider normal. And what I always say about a period is that it should have a beginning, a middle and an end and then be done. So it should be like a sentence. So it shouldn't go on and on. Uh, and, it, you know, it, uh, maybe a little bit of stopping and starting, but not like stopping two days and starting again. So it should have a flow. Before I kind of move on, the other thing I should mention is that although it's common for women to experience a lot of pain, outside of childbirth, <laughs> um, we can't really think of any other, I can't really think of any other examples where we think of pain as totally normal. So pain is a sign of inflammation. Pain can be, moderate to severe pain can be a sign of a more serious condition like endometriosis or other pelvic inflammatory conditions. So it's really important just to say it out loud from time to time that if you have really excruciatingly painful periods, that is actually a sign that we should be looking into. So we have the period. So once we then finish our period, we are in this pre-ovulatory phase. So if I were to take the cycle and divide it in half, the first half is before ovulation, the second half is, you know, after, so post-ovulatory phase. So in the pre-ovulatory phase, what's happening is that our ovaries are developing uh, follicles. We're preparing to ovulate. As those follicles develop, they're making estrogen and other hormones, but primarily estrogen in the pre-ovulatory phase. So then as you approach ovulation, um, once your period is done, you typically have what we call in the fertility awareness word, uh, world a couple dry days, meaning the days before you start to see cervical fluid. And then once the estrogen reaches to a certain point, as those follicles are developing, you start to see cervical fluid. And so that can look like creamy white hand lotion. It can look like clear, raw, stretchy egg whites. And you may or may not have noticed that before. If you're paying attention, you might see something in your underwear. You might feel a little bit of wetness. You might feel when you go to the bathroom and you wipe. It's really slippery sometimes. And I remember as a teenage girl, I, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff. And I remember suddenly I started having all this stuff in my underwear. And I asked my mom about it. And she was like, well, just, you know, she bought me some panty liners and I put them, I used them. But looking back, you know, that was my cervical fluid because it wasn't wet all the time. Uh, but of course, I didn't know anything about it. Uh, so I was fortunate because my mom just told me, like, she she basically said it's normal. And that's the panty liner was just to make it convenient. But many women end up in their doctor's office with prescriptions to antibiotics because no one told them that this is a normal, natural, healthy fluid that we produce that's associated with ovulation. And so if I could speak for most fertility awareness educators around the world, this is like the one thing that we want everyone to know. Like you make cervical fluid, it's normal, it's healthy, and it's important and useful to learn the difference between your healthy, normal cervical fluid, which would be white in color or clear in color, you know, you're producing this around ovulation, 
so to help you, if, if you ever have a yeast infection, if you ever have another type of infection to kind of know the difference. Okay, but I digress. So in a healthy cycle, then you'd have about two to seven days of mucus leading up to ovulation. Once you ovulate, you know, you release the egg and you start producing progesterone, which then shuts down the mucus production. So once you ovulate in a healthy typical cycle, you would then have dry days again until the, you know, the end of your cycle. And uh, in a healthy cycle, you would expect to have a post-ovulatory phase. So the number of days between ovulation and your next period, about 12 to 14 days. So if it's too short, that's a problem. If it's too long, take a pregnancy test. And so even just with me going through all of those little steps, I think at least for some of the listeners, that's a lot of detail. They're kind of like, oh, I, <laughs> I thought it was just my period, right? Like she's talking about all this mucus and this, you know, all these other things that to look at. And from that perspective, if we take it back to your question about, you know, the menstrual cycle is a vital sign, you can see that you can have, well, you may or may not be able to see that, but from uh, what I've seen, you could have a cycle that's 27 days that's really, really unhealthy if you have some of those parameters that are really off. Whereas you could have a cycle that actually looks pretty good that's like 34 days. And so from that perspective, then we're looking at the whole cycle, all of these factors together to really understand if it's if it's healthy. And from all of those different aspects that I shared for someone who's knowledgeable in interpreting the menstrual cycle, there's a lot of different health kind of aspects that could show up in these different phases. That's great. Thank you so much for all that information and explaining it that way. It's interesting. I see a lot of women in my clinic who are seeking help with conceiving. Obviously, I, I'm a fertility practitioner. And I end up teaching a lot of these concepts on a daily basis. What a healthy cycle is, what hormones are, what they do. The fact that there has to be intention behind timing of sex in order to get pregnant. It can't just happen at any time during your cycle. Why do you think that we as fully adult grown-up women who can drive cars and buy houses haven't necessarily been taught these basic things about how our bodies work? What do you think about that? I, I, I mean, it's an important question. I, there's a number of ways to answer it. I think there's there's probably a lot of reasons. So in, in the most honest fashion, I could say, you know, I don't really know what the one kind of big reason is, but I have some speculations. So one of them is certainly that uh, there's not a lot of money to be made in fertility awareness. It's not a device. It's not a medicine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I was researching for the fifth vital sign, there's at least 100 million women worldwide on hormonal contraceptives. I mean, do the math, right? That's a lot of money. <laughs> it's not something you buy once and you, it's something you buy every month. So there's a lot of money to be had in the pharmaceutical industry. And so I don't know if that's the reason, but I would say we should at least talk about that as a just a, a realization that if women did know in droves how to understand their cycles naturally, and if, if we felt empowered to manage our fertility without hormones, that would put a huge dent into a lot of pockets of a lot of these companies who make a ton of money off of birth control. <laughs> so I'll just put that one out there. Another big barrier and challenge is that the information that I described to you, and even uh, in the fifth vital sign, I have a, chap a whole chapter on cervical fluid. And one of the comments I've had from doctors and naturopaths is like, how come I went to medical school and I didn't learn all of this in, in detail? And I mean, I learned that as part of my training as a fertility awareness educator. Uh, it's evidence-based. There are you know, plenty of published research papers on cervical fluid and things like that. Uh, but it, it isn't something that is taught in this level of depth and detail in medical schools, in naturopathic colleges, in midwifery school, nursing school. And so one of the big challenges is like, where would you learn it? Part of the reason that I 
keep talking about this and I've been putting this information out there is because I just, I, like I said, I kind of stumbled on this. And I, you know, happened to be hooked to this uh, incredible knowledge. And I went to, you know, to, to school, to, to fertility awareness school to learn how to do this. And so that's how I learned it. But everyone isn't going to go to the silo of fertility awareness based methods. Uh, but I would say that's a big barrier as well. And it's also one of the challenges for women who then discover fertility awareness charting. So even for conception, it kind of boggles my mind why anyone would have an issue with fertility awareness when a woman's trying to conceive. But women who are trying to conceive often have that as a barrier. Their doctors may say something like, well, it doesn't even matter, just have sex every other day or whatever. And so they kind of even dismiss the value of understanding your cycle for the purpose of conceiving. So I'm, you know, there's other reasons we could talk about misogyny and the fact that the majority of medical research is done on men or male animals, right? So, so we don't even get into the research. How are we going to get into the textbooks? So there's a lot of issues. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big one. And, and it's one that I, I tend to touch on on a fairly regular basis, just, just kind of scratching the surface here on the podcast. But I think it's an important conversation to at least inspire people to have with one another. You know, why aren't we included in the research? Why isn't female physiology considered an important base part of knowledge when you're learning about how bodies work? It's, it's interesting stuff and it's important work. So thank you for being out there and spreading the good word, of course. Just to shift things a little bit in terms of, I guess it's kind of along the same lines, but in my work, I, I meet a lot of people who are using conventional medical procedures through a fertility clinic to uh, use the work to work towards their goals of building a family. And I see a lot of confusion and frustration and lack of understanding come up in that context. And I think it probably comes from a lack of understanding just that basic physiology. But I think there's also a piece of advocacy that comes into play. And I know that on your podcast, you talk a lot about self-advocacy in a medical context and talking to your doctor about using these methods. So do you have any advice for people who are kind of wanting to take that route with the fertility clinic and wanting to kind of gain this skill of being able to advocate for themselves a little bit better? And, and just to clarify, do you mean women who are looking to, you know, for artificial reproductive technology and looking to advocate for themselves within that context? Yeah, just working with the fertility clinic in general, because there can be a lot of mystery in terms of, well, we're just investigating what's happening. Sometimes treatment hasn't even been recommended yet. Mm -hmm. I think that just from the basic, even initial sense of it, when I think about it, I think it's important to have kind of like a team approach when you're working with fertility issues. And the reason that I feel that way is because you got to understand the medical model. You have to understand what they what they have to offer you. Because a lot of the women that I work with, and it could just be based on the nature of, of the work that I do, but a lot of the women that I work with, they want to know why. Of course, they want to get pregnant, but they also want to know why am I not getting pregnant? I mean, all of us, I mean, I think most of us were taught similar to I was. So in my junior high ed sex education class, they told us that we could get pregnant any day of the cycle. They told us that there were no safe days and I was thoroughly terrified. And so I believed, like most of us, that every day of the cycle was potentially fertile, only to learn that it, that it wasn't. So it's it's really confusing when you've been trying to avoid pregnancy for you know half your adult life. And then you start trying to conceive only to not conceive and for this to continue. I think because most of the women that at least that I work with want to know why this team approach comes in really handy. One of the pieces of education that I try to do 
as much as possible is to really educate about what it is you can expect from a classically trained medical professional. And it's not about putting down medical professionals. It's about having an understanding of what services that they provide. So, you know, when you're approaching care from a medical clinic, and I think we all need doctors. And if you're struggling with fertility challenges, uh, you do need to work up, you know, from a professional, there's a lot of different testing that is obviously very, very valuable. And so you have to understand what they offer. So they offer diagnostic testing, that kind of physical issues that could be there could be impeding your chances of success, certain levels of things and hormones and things like that. So really understanding the mechanics of it. In terms of solving it, though, uh, certainly the fertility clinics are uh, more specialized than your classical GP because they may also recommend certain supplements and things that are known to support fertility. So you are getting more specialized care from a fertility specialist. But there's certain things that they're not trained to support you with, which would include diet and maybe advanced supplementation protocols. If you have gut issues or if you have a, a thyroid issue or a specialized kind of health issue that you're working on, they may not necessarily have some of those things to offer you. And also your fertility specialists aren't necessarily coming from a functional approach. They're not necessarily looking at root cause medicine. They're kind of, and that's what we need to understand about the medical system in general. So when I say team approach, it means that understand what your fertility clinic has to offer you. Because many women go to the fertility specialist, depending on their age, depending on the situation, depending on the test results, they may be offered IVF right off the bat. And that might feel so invasive. You you don't necessarily, like, what I, what I often say to my clients about something like that is that if you look at the stats, if you're like 39 years old, IVF is statistically much more likely to result in a, a, a live birth than IUI at that particular point. And so you may take that to be, this person is trying to push me into IVF, but really that person is trying to say like, this is what I have to offer you. And this out of what I have to offer you is the best option. Whereas if you have a team approach and you have a, a practitioner that's working in a different area, there may be other things that you might be able to work on. So um, in terms of advocacy, I think the first step is just to understand what like one of the silly examples I, I often use is like, well, you don't go to, you know, you don't go to McDonald's and expect them to change your oil. <laughs> that would be crazy. So you have to kind of know what you're going to expect. And also I would suggest to really do some digging and find a team. And when I say team, I mean, have your medical professional, have your um, potentially naturopathic doctor or holistic nutritionist or um, like seek out what other providers can support you. And absolutely, if you are listening to this podcast and this episode right now and this episode interests you, you're interested in learning more about your cycle and how it works, definitely consider charting your cycle and starting to get an understanding of what's happening. There are certain things that you can identify through charting that you may or may not easily be able to identify without it. That's great advice. Thank you. And I think one thing that's coming up for me right now is that some of our listeners were, will already be, you know, in the middle of IVF or using medicine to work on their fertility goals. They might be taking medications or doing some kind of therapy with their clinic. So my question to you is, is it still worthwhile learning to chart your cycles? Are there any considerations if you're already doing procedures? Does it kind of negate the ability to be able to be that detective if you're being influenced by medications that you're taking? For a period of time, yes. So, I mean, there's a it's it's kind of diametrically opposed in a way. Uh, so when you're charting your cycle, 
what you're doing is you're not actively changing your cycle. You're observing the natural unfolding of your cycle. So when you're not, you know, in the middle of an IVF cycle, if you are cycling, uh, what's going to happen is, you know, we talked about having your period moving towards ovulation. So you're just really tracking this and trying to understand it. So I've worked with women maybe on you know, either end of their potential IVF treatments who are looking to say do an intrauterine insemination IUI, but because they're charting, they might just not get the stimulation to force them to ovulate. They may just chart, use the LH strips to better kind of time the ovulation or at least to get a, to, to get a closer idea of when their um, ovulation is imminent and then time their procedures alongside it. So that's an example of how, you know, charting could specifically influence your procedures. When you're doing an IVF procedure, like you mentioned, IVF is a completely different situation. So you are not ovulating naturally. They are giving you, they are preparing the uterus, they are giving you estrogen. So they're basically forcing a cycle on you, you know, and they usually put you on birth control as a way of kind of restarting the cycle for, uh, you know, a couple of days or weeks. And then they give you the estrogen, they, you know, give you the trigger shot, they give you the progesterone. So they're creating a cycle. On the flip side, though, it doesn't mean that you can't chart. It doesn't mean that you can't pay attention. I think that for women who maybe have charted, it really depends. Some women find charting to be stressful. We can talk a little bit about that. But for women who are doing it, it can be helpful, especially if you kind of react negatively to some of those hormones. It can kind of help you make sense of it. If you know, if you're kind of noting down what days you're taking what and when you're feeling a certain way and and those kinds of things. So I think there's still value in tracking in general, but it's going to be different when you are in the middle of a medicated cycle. Okay, perfect. And let's talk a little bit about building that skill as as you mentioned before. I do want to come back to that stress piece for sure, because it's something that definitely comes up on a regular basis when I suggest that people track their cycles. They're like, oh, that's so much work and that's really stressful. And then I can't sleep because I'm anticipating having to wake up in the morning and take my temperature. But just from a basic level, outside of the context of an IVF cycle, how long do you recommend that people chart and kind of get an idea of what their cycles look like um, before they can really judge that they, that they know things well? I would say it, it first and foremost depends on what their goals are. So in terms of, I mean, I teach women charting for both birth control and then for conception. And if I'm working with someone for conception, it's usually someone who has been trying and hasn't been successful. And so in a situation like that, she's looking for information. She's trying to understand what's happening with her, her cycle. So in that situation, my aim is to, you know, teach her the basics of charting so that she understands how to chart her cervical fluid, her temperature, her cervical position, which is an optional sign if she wants to. And I teach a, a really kind of detailed way of charting. But the reason that it's so detailed is because we are using the cycle as a vital sign and we're trying to look to see the cycle on paper is a representation of what's happening hormonally. And so by tracking the cervical fluid and how many times you see it and how much you see and what color is it and all this detail, and by tracking how many days between your ovulation and your period and any days of spotting and all those things, that allows us to get this kind of baseline information of, you know, what's happening in your cycle. Is it falling into normal parameters? And if not, which parameters are out of line? And through that process, when you're working with someone like me, then we're going to introduce different things. So we're going to see, uh, you know, is there something that we need to do? Is there something, there's usually kind of a lot of basic things that we can all use support with, even though we kind of know, like, I know I should eat breakfast and I know I shouldn't, you know, work out and skip dinner, but we sometimes need a bit of encouragement. 
and also sometimes need to see on the cycle chart how your behavior directly <laughs> impacts your cycles. So from that perspective, you know, two, three, four cycles is, is, is a wealth of information because it also allows time for you to implement certain changes and actually watch your cycles to see how they respond. And if you're just doing it on your own, again, that depends on the goals. So in that scenario, the goal of that person is to uh, really start to understand what's happening in their cycle and see what they can do potentially to resolve that. And that's not necessarily something that they're going to get with their doctor. The doctor isn't doing those particular types of lifestyle changes. So for someone who's just trying to understand like, okay, I just need to know when to hit the dates. <laughs> like that's not, that, like, I just need to know like the timing, right? So from that perspective, then you just need a couple of cycles to like at least to get started so that you can see, do you have a clear cervical fluid pattern? So the one takeaway for everyone who's trying to conceive is that I always suggest mucus should be the primary sign, even if you're using ovulation predictor kits and things like that, because in a healthy cycle, when you see cervical fluid, that is a sign that the estrogen is rising. Uh, that's the sign that you're approaching ovulation. And also the, the cervical fluid itself keeps the sperm alive for up to five days. It filters out abnormal sperm. So it's very important for natural conception. So have sex when you see mucus. So from that perspective, you can kind of have that sorted out within a couple of cycles. And to touch on the stress piece as well, with the temperature, I actually had a conversation with a woman recently uh, who had used fertility awareness in the past, and the temperature was something that had really stressed her out. And so, I mean, I take a different approach, I think, to a lot of practitioners about it, maybe just because I've done it for so long and I've, I'm like, I'm kind of living in the real world. Because there's a lot of people who say, oh, you got to wake up at this time every day and all that kind of stuff. So, ideally, sure, uh, within about two hours or so of the wake up time can be helpful. But there's all these great apps that you can just write down what time you woke up in the morning. I think most of us do typically wake up about the same time most of the time because most of us, you know, work. And maybe on the weekends, we get up a little later. So it's really not that big of a deal. But when you're trying to conceive, there are more than one fertility awareness based method. That's something that, you know, a lot of women might not know if they're kind of new to the fertility awareness concept. So there are multiple fertility awareness based methods. And some of those methods are mucus only. So when you're trying to conceive, I mean, if the temperatures are stressing you out, if you learn to track your cervical fluid and just pay attention to that, and just, you know, kind of write that down, you can kind of, I mean, the temperatures are helpful to kind of confirm ovulation, right? So that, you know, especially if you're wanting to know, when, but but the, the cervical fluid can be the same. So just to kind of share, I guess, some ideas of how, even if the tracking is causing you stress, you could kind of focus on one aspect of it over another to maybe alleviate some of that stress. That's great advice. Thank you. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a little different when you're using the method as birth control because the consequences of, you know, quote, getting it wrong are just so much more significant. Um, but if you are trying to get pregnant, it makes sense that you could kind of pick one aspect and just focus on that. And that would give you a great head start and probably a lot of awareness that you wouldn't necessarily have had before. So that's great. Well, and I just want to take on to that because when I first started uh, teaching women, I actually really thought that, that, like, I kind of was like, well, it doesn't need, like, it only matters when you're trying to avoid pregnancy, right? Because how could you screw this up? So you can screw it up. <laughs> the reason I say that is because uh, we've been really trained to think that cycles are always 28 days and the ovulation always happens on day 14. So there are a lot of women who basically have sex on day 14 or around day 14 and then they, that's kind of it. Uh, so 
it is still important to understand the cycle and to at least have that basic of information that, you know, even if you see cervical fluid for a few days, if you see it again, you want to pay attention to that. You know, you don't want to get into the habit of thinking because for a woman who's conceiving, the way you can quote screw it up is if you don't pay attention to what's actually happening in your cycle and instead have sex based on your um, when you anticipate ovulation could happen. Let's say you ovulate on day 12 of the cycle. Well, having sex on day 14 isn't going to help you. Nope. Uh, let's say if you ovulate on day 22 of the cycle and you stop having sex by day 15, right? So, of course, I'm just giving that example of, for me, when I first started in this work, I very much shared th that perspective, like, well, you know, but now that I'm in the work, no, it's just as important for women who are tracking to be able to confirm ovulation. But of course, it is a bit different, obviously, the but the consequence could be missing out on like three, four cycles. For sure. And I think that um, you bring up an interesting point with kind of assuming that uh, that the ovulation will happen at a certain time, because I think there's all these apps out there that kind of use a computer to predict when ovulation is, even though they're not using real data from the human body that's inputting the information yet, as especially in the early days. I think maybe the algorithms have gotten better and maybe the, the more, the longer you use the app, the more effective it might be. But I, I see a lot of people come into my clinic and they're like, well, my app says I'm ovulating today. And I'm like, is there cervical mucus? You know, what else is going on? And it's, or the fertility clinic sa says, well, you haven't ovulated yet, but my app said I did. So it's kind of interesting to try to reconcile that. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the challenges with apps. So, I mean, I'm not necessarily objective because I teach women to chart their cycles. Uh, but my perspective on apps is that, you know, just like any technology, uh, they're helpful tools. But what's more important from my perspective is that knowledge base. So that's the the problem. I always say like the app doesn't know what's in your panties. So good. <laughs> so the apps can be really good to, to, it's like a gateway drug to fertility awareness. So like great, yay for apps. But what I feel is really important is the knowledge. So this kind of even goes back to the question you asked me a little while ago, which is that why don't we know this information on all of that? And so it's great that we have all these cool tech devices and all of this, but it can't be in lieu of educating women about their bodies. So uh, the most important thing is that we understand the basics. The most basic thing I can say is pay attention to your cervical fluid. Have sex when you see it. If you see it early, if you see it on day seven, have sex on day seven of your cycle. You know, don't think, oh, it's day seven, it's too early. It doesn't matter what you think. If the mucus is in your, <laughs> like, is the mucus in the panties or not? So if the mucus is there, have the sex. If the mucus shows up on day 14 and then it goes away and it shows up again on day 22, have sex on day 22, you know, learn how to chart and take some time to just understand the basics. You don't have to go all the way into, like I said, I, I teach a very detailed charting system. You don't necessarily have to go all the way down the rabbit hole, but it is going to be beneficial for you to understand how your body works because the tech does get it right sometimes, but it doesn't work for every scenario and every woman. And like you said, if it's already kind of telling you the first cycle when you're ovulating, like, no, it doesn't know. It's basing that on like the average of, you know, all these cycles that it's it's done. And even ovulation predictor st strips are a good example where, so what is an ovulation predictor strip? It is a, you know, piece of paper slash device that has been programmed to turn a certain color when a certain hormone reaches a certain threshold. 
that's what it is designed to do. So as a practical tip, you know, if you're doing them, you might want to consider getting some like a cup or something so that you actually you're not like peeing on it, but you put, dip it <laughs> so that it actually is able to kind of get a good reading. So that's like a, a little pro tip. But from that perspective, there are women who I've seen it who ovulate, but maybe their hormone level that the luteinizing hormone LH, which triggers ovulation that they're testing for, it doesn't go high enough to so even though she ovulated, she didn't get a positive. Like I've seen that happen. I've seen other women have multiple positives uh, because their LH is high, maybe because they have a condition like an issue like PCOS, for example. So this is what I'm saying. Like the tech is great, but we are the ones that need to understand our bodies first and foremost and learn how to incorporate that tech in a way that actually helps us to, to achieve the goals that we want, right? So because that's the, that's the whole point. So good. Thank you. And I, I really appreciate little, that little tidbit for people who might be a little bit intimidated by the whole thing. Just find your mucus, have sex when you have your mucus. That's a really great place to start. Um, but if people do want to go a little bit deeper or a lot deeper with this stuff, you have so many amazing books and programs and online offerings. So can you tell everybody a little bit about how they can get in touch with you and work with you a little bit more? Yes. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, so the book, The Fifth Vital Sign, we were talking about that earlier. That was essentially the answer to the most common question that I get all the time, which is why didn't anyone ever teach me this stuff? And so uh, in that book, because I'm not a medical doctor, I know some people are like, how does she know so much? Because <laughs> I read a lot of research papers. And I, <laughs> I've done my homework. But so essentially, I wanted to create a resource that wasn't just like a listen to me, I know everything. It was more of a, you know, this is the information. Um, I've assembled it for you. And it, for those of you who are listening, who happen to be kind of on the nerdier end, like I am, there's a 40 page research list at the end of the book. So the things that I'm talking about, my goal was to make it accessible. So you can, you know, double check my work and, you know, look if you want to at those original sources. I feel that that's important because this is an area where women still have a lot of challenges getting support from their practitioners. We are still in the age where even though there's a huge difference between modern fertility awareness based methods and the rhythm method, which is essentially a calendar calculation method. Modern fertility awareness-based methods, there's a lot of research behind them. You know, uh, in terms of birth control, I know we weren't talking about birth control today, but the symptothermal method, so using uh, cervical fluid, basal body temperature, cervical position, there's a study that I often quote that showed a 99.4% efficacy when used correctly, which is 99.4%. That's like right alongside hormonal contraceptives. So there's this myth that, you know, these methods don't work and that it's just, you know, hearsay or, or old fashioned or, or whatever. So when I wrote the book, I just wanted to make sure that, you know, I was providing that information so women could feel confident about all of that. So with that said, <laughs> the book is available um, on Amazon. You can go to thefifthvitalsignbook.com and get the first chapter for free. I have a podcast, the Fertility Friday podcast. You could just type Fertility Friday into your favorite podcast player and there's over 350 episodes <laughs> getting, getting out of hand over there, but it's good. And uh, I'm on Instagram at Fertility Friday. I, I think that's a really a great place to connect as well. So those are the places. Perfect. And then you do offer online programs for people who want to go deep with you. Is that correct? I do. So I do one-on-one um, -on -one client work. I do group work. Uh, the group programs have been a lot of fun uh, because it allows 
uh, for women to see what I see. It kind of allows you to see behind the scenes of what this really looks like, and even at different phases uh, of the cycle. And I've recently started a practitioner training program because after years of doing this work, then kind of like the second most common question is like, well, I want to do what you do. <laughs> and so I've developed a training program there. Uh, so I mean, ultimately, all of these programs are kind of with the same aim to really empower women to understand their bodies, and not just for birth control or conception. But what I find that is obviously very important. But what I find is that it really empowers us to, uh, to realize that we have a lot of control over our own health. I think that when you're charting and you can, you know, let's say you, you do something different, you make a change and you actually see a positive shift in your cycle that is sustained, I feel like it really shifts that dynamic from I need to go to the doctor and he needs to have all the answers to, wow, like I actually can do a lot on my own to improve my own health. Um, so that's really what keeps me jazzed too about, about doing this because that's the process that most of the women who I work with uh, find themselves in. <laughs> So good. I'll make sure that I link all of that information in the show notes so people can find it easily and click through to see you. Lisa, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And it's been an honor to have you and interview you. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. So that was my interview with Lisa. Isn't she amazing? I'll be sure to link all of her info in the show notes so you can find it easily. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, take care. Thank you for joining us on Fertility Academy. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you loved our content today, please be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share it with someone who you think might find it helpful. Don't forget to subscribe to be the first to be notified of new episodes. A new one comes out every Wednesday. To keep in touch with us and to continue the conversation, you can find us over on Instagram at Fertility Academy or join us on our private Facebook group, the Fertility Academy Community. Both are linked in the show notes today. Until next time, have a great week.